Thank you to all our listeners who've already taken the time to fill out the Japan Times deep dive survey. We really appreciate your responses and we'll use your feedback to make the show better in the future. If you've not yet taken the survey and would like to help out the show, please fill it in by visiting jtimes.jp slash dd. One more time, that is jtimes.jp slash dd. Or leave us a rating or a review on whichever podcasting service you use. Thank you very much. We'd have to、um, get you down to the islands to be on this tiny dot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and have this vast, powerful typhoon roll it right over you.、Uh, I think is an experience kind of everyone should have because it's just very humbling. <laughs> From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd, and you're listening to Deep Dive. To those listening from within Japan, I hope your weekends haven't been too rough and you escaped the worst of the typhoon winds and rain. If you have been affected, I wish you a speedy recovery and hope your spirits were lifted at least a little bit by Japan's win over Scotland in the Rugby World Cup on Sunday night. The victory is there! And the emotion pours down from the stands here in Yokohama. On this week's episode, we hear from the Japan Times' Andrew McCurdy, who was forced to spend a night at an evacuation shelter in Tokyo after the river Ara threatened to break its banks. We also hear from our reporter Chisato Tanaka, who was up in Nagano Prefecture and saw some of the worst affected areas firsthand. But first, I'm joined by storm chaser and video producer James Reynolds to talk about Typhoon Hagibis and a career spent tracking down some of the Earth's most violent natural events. Also, with us for this conversation is Japan Times editor Dan Trailer, who joined James in 2018 on a hunt of Typhoon Jebi, one of the strongest typhoons to ever hit Japan. James, Dan, welcome to Deep Dive, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Oscar. It's great to be here. Good to be here. I want to start off this episode by comparing our Saturday nights. There's been a massive typhoon that's just hit Japan, Tokyo. Didn't get the worst of it, fortunately, but some of the areas around got pretty badly hit. And I, for one, was tucked up in a building reading a book、uh, with a bathtub full of water in case the water supplies broke. Dan, where were you for your typhoon? Yeah, I also had the, the bathtub full of water and a flashlight nearby,、uh, but fortunately, nothing, no power outages or, or water supply issues occurred for me. I was、uh, at home、uh, working on the Japan Times live blog coverage. Uh, of the storm on its approach. And James? I was in the wonderful town of Shimoda,、uh, right on the southern tip of the Izu Peninsula in、uh, Shizuoka Prefecture. And were you tucked、um, up nicely inside? <laughs> I was,、uh, for a lot of the time, tucked up in my car, soaking wet, just trying to stay warm. And I was down there to,、uh, to meet the typhoon head on and right at the coast. What were you hoping? To get from being down the Izu Peninsula in Shimoda? So, my aim,、uh, first up and most simply, was is to always try and capture the most、uh, intense scenes of these storms as they are hitting land. And generally, that takes place right on the coast, you know, the first bit of land where these storms are making contact as they roll off the ocean. Hagibis was fantastically well forecast, so it seemed for many days in advance that Izu、uh, was the place to be. Um, so, I went down there with my cameras, had like five GoPro cameras、mm. and then a bigger kind of TV Sony style camera. And I wanted to get where I was going to get the huge waves crashing ashore, the strongest winds,、uh, the storm surge. And uniquely to this storm, 
uh, given its vast size and the timing that it was coming ashore, I, I knew that the Izu Peninsula would be the best place to get some uh, video footage in daylight because after dark in these rural areas, it's impossible to, to shoot these storms. Okay, and describe the storm as it was coming in. Well, the, the, the defining factor about Hagibis was just how big it was. And when I say big, I don't necessarily mean how strong it was. Mm. I mean, you know, just the vast extent of the storm. So well ahead of landfall, these really powerful winds and huge waves were crashing ashore. So that meant you kind of had to deal with the really severe weather and conditions for a much longer period of time, as opposed to, say, the typhoon Faxai, which uh, hit a similar area just uh, about a month ago. Mm -hmm. That was a very small storm. I think a lot of the attention that Hagabas got in the run-up was its uh, rapid intensification out in the Pacific uh, prior to uh, getting closer to the Izu Peninsula. And even in the Japan Times, that was making headlines mm. in the days leading up to it. But in the end, the bigger effect for Japan was the sustained heavy rainfall leading to the flooding and rivers breaking their banks. And I think, looking back, I wonder if the wind aspect of it, while interesting, might have been might have gained too much focus compared to the to warnings about heavy rain and flooding. Well, certainly the rain seems to start 24 hours in advance and just didn't stop for the entire period the typhoon was uh, careering towards Japan. I think at its widest, they were saying it was 830 miles wide, about 1,300 kilometers wide. Yeah, this was what we would call a classic October super typhoon. Some of the strongest uh, and largest typhoons that we've uh, ever seen during record-keeping times have occurred at this time of year. And, you know, Hagabis really just fitted that mold. And yeah, it was just the size of the storm. You know, you're looking at all this tropical moisture being dragged up from the Pacific and just parking itself over Japan for an extended period, well ahead of the storm actually making landfall. That's why we've seen all these uh, horrendous flooding and the landslides and the disaster that's unfolded. Dan, you wrote an article about your experiences with James, which came up back in June, I believe it was. Um, so this has been on the cards for a while, and then it's kind of coincidental that you are here following what is one of the biggest storms ever to have hit Japan. But Dan, perhaps you can tell me, how did you first come across James, and how did you end up uh, joining him on one of his typhoon hunts? Uh, when I first came to Japan, actually, I was in uh, the city of Issei in Mie Prefecture, and... During my five years in Mie, it was my first experience with tropical cyclones at all. I'm from Oregon in the United States, and we don't get tropical cyclones. Mm. So I was really interested in them. Uh, so I just became a typhoon nerd, in a way, if you will, <laughs> uh, during those years. And then much, much later, uh, when I started working at the Japan Times, I eventually came across uh, James's Twitter account. From there, this, the idea was was born of trying to join him for a chase and to write an article that it, that tries to tell a story about what he does. And so I just cold called, uh, cold direct messaged him on Twitter, and he was open to the idea right away. So we kept looking for a possible typhoon that I could join him on, and Jebby was just right in terms of location, and it turned out to be a very serious storm. One of the biggest of 2018. James, how was that for you, getting a Twitter message out of the blue from Dan asking to join you on one of your chases? It, it was it was funny. Um, it was quite a surprise. And, and I have to say, sometimes I'm a little bit hesitant about who I travel with in a typhoon or when I'm working because <laughs> I do like my independence. Um, and I do worry about people like 
potentially freaking out or getting a bit worried about the scenarios we were we were going to get into. But it was it was interesting because I re- I remember that whole summer. It was another summer where so many typhoons had kind of recurved mm. and come up to Japan. Most of them had been weak and pretty inconsequential. And then Jebby came along and it somehow the, the stars aligned. And I was like, Dan said, yeah, I'm down for it. And I was like, yeah, me too. Let's, let's do it. But I personally went into that storm thinking it was not going to be a big deal at all. And Dan, did you have any idea of what you were getting yourself into with Jebby and with joining James on his trip? Not really. Um, just I, I knew that I was getting myself into something that would be completely new for me. And I tried to, to prepare uh, the best I could. I, I think we first met just off the expressway in northern Mie Prefecture. Is that right? The, the storm actually made landfall the next day. So we had a, a day of uh, scouting locations and getting ready. But um, I realized that he was uh, quite prepared with a lot of things like uh, a helmet, uh, for example. I when I saw his helmet, I thought, okay, maybe I should have brought a helmet. Yeah, what uh, did you have in your in your bag of gear? So uh, I I had some old shoes, <laughs> and I'd compare that to James having like specific shoes that he uses on a chase, and I had to throw my shoes away at a rest stop <laughs> on the way home. I fortunately brought a backup pair. That was my one uh, major choice for preparation. Um, I had a, a I didn't have a really good raincoat, so I bought a windbreaker, <laughs> which didn't quite hold up. Uh, what, I noticed what that James kind of like had like 7-11 ponchos? Uniqlo, uh, Uniqlo windbreaker. It was better than how I was equipped for my first typhoon, which was a 7-11 poncho and flip-flops and a <laughs> plastic bag with my wallet in and my phone. Um, you were a lot better prepared than I was when I first went through a typhoon chase. So you said uh, you were scouting out locations. What is the perfect location for you? How do you go about choosing a location that's going to be ideal for covering a typhoon? Choosing the right location to shoot, it, it's a continuous hazard assessment. So basically you're looking for a place which is going to be uh, perfectly located to just be in the either take the direct hit from the eye of the storm or just be to the, the east of where the center is going to cross the coast. So that's the kind of specific uh, geographic location you you want to choose. Um, but if there's anything there which is a suitable and safe place to, to ride out a storm, that's, that's the big question. So you're continually looking for, you know, somewhere which is going to keep you protected from the wind. So obviously a concrete building or a, you know, a covered car park or something like that. Uh, somewhere where you're not going to get washed away by a flood from, mm. uh, so you wouldn't want to be next to, you know, a mountain river or something like that. The most significant hazard, which worries me, is storm surge. So having a little bit of elevation or distance from the coast, uh, especially with the really powerful and strong typhoons. And you need to kind of be fluid with your plans as well, because things do change. You know, this landfall location can change, you know, two, three hours before the storm hits. So Mm. you have to think about relocating in foul weather, really hazardous driving conditions and stuff. But yeah, it's just constantly assessing what's going to be safe and just try and keep the potential for surprises cropping up as low as possible. I remember with Jebby, the the main location scouting occurred on the morning uh, of the day it made landfall and we were driving along the coast of Wakayama and we were at a place where you look to the left and it's this mountain ridge with lots of rocks and you look to the right and it's the, you know, it's the ocean and waves already crashing ashore. And uh, you pointed out that this wouldn't be, this is not where we want to be when the typhoon <laughs> arrives. And yeah. that, that sort of led to the choice later to 
not be on the coast. Yeah, absolutely. We know in Japan, in these slightly more rural areas, there's these tiny little fishing harbors dotted everywhere. The bigger ones can work well, uh, but these small ones, they didn't have any adequate shelter just to get out of the elements. And normally I would be scouting a location kind of well in advance than the morning before the storm hits at lunchtime. And again, I put my hands up, I admit that was partly because uh, it's just another kind of Honshu typhoon. They're not that strong. You can just kind of be out in them and be okay. You know, thankfully we did find and settle on a really, uh, it was, it was, it worked fine. It was a little, things got a little <laughs> dicier than I thought they would. Uh, <laughs> a lot of debris and sheets of metal swirling around, um, but it, it worked out okay, it, thankfully. And Dan, do you agree with that uh, post-assessment? Apart from your, apart from your shoes, was everything okay? Yeah, uh, we, I did have to duck behind a, a car at one point because the sheet metal was, you know, being thrashed around the street uh, just 10, 20 meters in front of us. And I think James, like, just saw that and he looked at me and said, like, you need to duck down behind that car. And I, I did. Yeah, that typhoon whipped up a lot of flying debris in the air, which is something I'm not used to seeing. Uh, there was a moment there where I was like, oh, maybe we had bitten off more than we could chew. Uh, <laughs> did, you, uh, did you express that to Dan? Or? I, I, you know, I tried to cool heads in these situations. There was, there was a moment where you said something to the, to the effect of this, there's a little bit of a punch to this storm. So I, I kind of sensed that you were observing a bit stronger of a storm than you had expected but i didn't really take it as a uh-oh situation but just a okay we need to be careful yeah so we we're already that, being careful but you know that's turn up the carefulness a little bit and you know halfway through the storm as it was it was cranking full bore i, I totally forgot that i bought my own car into this storm because i'm, I'm usually have a rental car and i kind of <laughs> what do you I'm say like, to the rental agency when i, uh, I just <laughs> keep my mouth shut most of the time <laughs> And they, they always lecture me, there's a typhoon. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm all, yeah, okay. I'll. Uh, but no, look, I, I try and respect other people's property. So I'm always trying to keep the car. So you want to be able to have a functioning ride after the storm mm. to get out and get back to whatever the hotel or carry on the documentation. And so at this point, James, you are now doing this professionally. You are gathering footage and then selling it on to agencies who want to use it and other services who want to see footage from the storm. But how did you first get into it? I assume it didn't immediately start as a professional gig. Yeah, it, it's quite random and, and convoluted, and I never set out to do it this way. Um, everything was primarily driven uh, and still is to an extent by my my interest in the subject matter which is typhoons and i also do cover volcanic eruptions uh, and things like that but certainly the the tropical cyclones hurricanes and typhoons are my primary interest and i did start this off just going in with a very cheap uh rubbish quality video camera <laughs> uploading videos to youtube um with a certain regularity where news producers started noticing what I was doing. This was really in the, the dawn of social media as well. Mm -hmm. So in the very early days of Twitter, early days of YouTube. And yeah, and people started noticing my work because I was kind of getting the images out faster from the areas where the traditional news crews didn't necessarily know where to position themselves and shoot. So one request became two requests. And then before I knew it, it became apparent that if I invested in some better gear and actually went out there and aggressively shot this content 
uh, that became enough buyers to sustain doing this uh, professionally. It's interesting, though, that you say it's your passion for typhoons that's led this to happen. I get having a passion for typhoon, and Dan, you described yourself earlier as a bit of a typhoon nerd, but how do you go from just the study of them and appreciating them and appreciating other imagery of them to actually wanting to throw yourself out into the storm? I, sh- I should really clarify when I say, like, I'm passionate about typhoons. Yes, yeah, the, the forces of nature themselves really interest me. But I, what also really drives me is the whole challenge of what I do. It's like this big puzzle with, you know, oh, however many different complicated pieces which you need to fit together to get to the right place at the right time with the cameras rolling to be able to shoot the footage I shoot. When that all comes together and then the storm hits and I'm rolling, I, I get a lot of kind of satisfaction from that side of things as well, just the whole like problem solving and challenge of it. But yeah, I think as to how I really took it to the next level or decided to get involved, uh, you know, I started off being interested in just thunderstorms in England, which is where I grew up, which mm. uh, are pretty tame, as <laughs> any uh, British people would know. Um, but I always had this fascination in the weather. And then being in Asia and being a kind of, you know, witness to these typhoons, I was like, whoa, this is a whole nother level of weather. And I really kind of want to explore this. And Dan, having now joined James on one of his shoots, have you got any uh, burning passion to continue going out and uh, tracking more typhoons? I would go again. I mean, uh, if James would have me, uh, I would be interested in going again. No, absolutely. I would have to um, get you down to the islands, uh, Okinawa, Miyakojima, because that's a very interesting place to, to witness a typhoon. One, because they're exceptionally strong down there. Mm. But just to be on this tiny dot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and have this vast, powerful typhoon kind of pass right, roll it right over you, uh, I think is an experience kind of everyone should have because it's just very humbling <laughs> and, you know, it makes you kind of feel quite insignificant and give you a kind of a new look on life once you kind of witness something like that. And I think uh, if I do that, I will bring a helmet. <laughs> yeah, do bring a helmet and we'll, we'll have a rental car. If I can steal a question... Um, you wouldn't recommend this, like to amateurs, to go off to the, you know, to the Izu Peninsula to try to get iPhone footage of the typhoon. I, I assume. I mean, this, there's uh, the professional aspect is the the risk assessment and the and the various other things. I'm sure. So I mean, if my my friend says, "Hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the coast to get some typhoon footage," what might I say to him? Yeah, look, I, I never want to stifle people's kind of curiosity. St- I started off like that. You know, people are curious. There's nothing wrong with that. But I would recommend against it because it, it is it is hazardous. It's dangerous. And if you're not fully clued into just what can kill you and how, um, you can get into trouble quite easily. You know, if someone was really determined to do it, I'd just recommend that they find a nice, sturdy hotel and ask for an ocean view room, you know, whatever, and just ride it out with a few beers and some uh, instant cup noodles on hand for when the power goes out. And you're stuck in a room which is really hot and the water's coming in and there's no water to flush the toilet. And then, you know, the kind of the reality of the situation makes itself apparent, you know. They can go from being quite fun and interesting to being really miserable very quickly. So just have a really good grasp of the 
the realities of the situation and that the aftermath can be can be pretty unpleasant as well on that topic have there been any times where you've really felt like it's been life-threatening uh yeah absolutely um i had a friend who almost lost a leg in a typhoon uh in the philippines um was super typhoon haiyan back in 2013 which was one of the strongest tropical cyclones to hit land anywhere in the world things were going extremely well from our perspective as a, a crew filming the storm and then suddenly uh, in the blink of an eye, it descended into chaos. And that is the nature of these things, especially the, the really, really strong typhoons. And that's what I'm constantly trying to prevent from happening. Um, thankfully, he got, got through, spent a lot of time in hospital, but he still got his legs and made a full recovery. And was he just hit by something? or? Well, unfortunately, he, we kind of had to put the cameras down and start rescuing people, which I think is, you know, I don't go out there to to rescue people. That's not why I do this. But uh, morally and ethically, it's incredibly important that if I'm, and anyone who p deliberately puts himself in the, the path of a storm makes himself useful instantly when it's required, mm. you know. Um, and that's what we were trying to do. So my there was some people trapped in a, in a, a ground floor hotel room as the storm surge was rising, the, do the door was jammed, they couldn't get out. Uh, so my, my buddy kind of rushed out into the storm surge, which was up to his waist, and there was a sheet metal under the water and it gashed his leg open. Thankfully at the front near the shin bone, so there was, thank goodness there was not much bleeding, but it tore his leg open down to the bone. So, uh, and then suddenly we were in this devastated city with no access to medical care. And in a tropical wound. country, open wound. Um, so it was an absolute nightmare situation. And I remember thinking at the time, this is almost going too well. We're in the perfect building. The storm surge is rising, but we're safe. We're helping our people uh, who are freaking out and understandably and needing help. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, one of my, my friend is, uh, you know, a victim as well. It's a complete nightmare. I want to move on and wrap up with um, just your observations of how typhoons have changed over the last decade or so that you've been doing this job. In Japan, we've had three huge typhoons hit within the last kind of year and a half. Hagabis most recently, Faxai before that, Jebi the year before. Do you think typhoons are getting stronger? Um, what's it like reporting on the ground? I am seeing more and more things which are surprising me, alarming me. And look, I haven't been doing this for long. I've been I've been kind of tracking typhoons seriously f since 2005. Um, so my anecdotal evidence wouldn't withstand strict scientific scrutiny. But strange things are happening. You know, Super Typhoon Haiyan in, in 2013, that was, as I was sat on the Philippines coast checking my Twitter feed, you know, the meteorolog meteorologists were messaging me saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Um, look at Typhoon Faxai. The radar returns as that storm was cruising right up the middle of Tokyo Bay as this fully-fledged, intense tropical system. I don't think anyone's seen that before. And not saying it hasn't happened hundreds and thousands of years ago, I'm sure it has. But these unique, strange events are kind of starting to pile up on top of each other, one after another. And as you mentioned, this, 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 I'm not sure off the top of my head how long ago it was before Jebby that a very strong typhoon made landfall in, in Honshu? Was it something like 20 years or maybe even longer? And then you get three in the space of 14 months. Mm. Strange things are happening. 
and I and I believe I'm not a scientist, I'm not a meteorologist, but my understanding of the the science as it stands right now is we are going to be seeing not necessarily more storms, but the storms which do form will have the chance to get stronger and stronger as sea surface temperatures are warmer and atmospheric conditions allow them to just really reach that apex intensity. And when you say strange things are happening, can you be more specific about that? What what kind of things are you seeing? You know, specifically explosive rapid intensification. We saw that with Hagibis uh, just as it was east of Guam and Saipan. Uh, a lot of meteorologists were saying that was potentially record-breaking intensification. So we're talking about a, a cluster of thunderstorms being classified as a tropical storm, going to one of the most powerful, you know, Category 5 intensities in the space of 24 hours. Mm. That's just astounding. One story last week leading up to Typhoon Hagibis, experts did say that their rapid intensification may be something that's becoming more common. And if you have more storms intensifying more rapidly than Japan, we'll see stronger storms make landfall. The numbers are there in some studies that back this up. There's one study, I think, that did get quoted in, in the article about James. And I've seen other reporting uh, talking with studies focused more on the Atlantic and hurricanes, but that talk about how higher sea surface temperatures are leading to re more rapid intensification which leads to more dangerous storms affecting land. So I think that that is a trend that's being discussed, and I'm not going to be able to talk about it in the, the scientific sense, but I think it's something that the researchers and meteorologists are looking into, and we'll probably start to see more uh, firm numbers on that. And James, as someone who's been on the coast, do you have any advice for people surviving and waiting out big storms and typhoons? Yeah, there's, there's one simple phrase which I always like to tell people um, and if you heed it your chances are you'll be all right so it's run from the water be that the ocean or you know a, a river which could be flooding and hide from the wind so just surround yourself in concrete the building standards in Japan are very good so if you are you know just in a a big hotel or or whatever your chances are or apartment block your chances of being fine uh you know, good. Um, stay away from windows. If you're at home, you know, put towels down by the windows or your sliding doors uh, and just make sure you've got enough food and water to last you three days, four days. Yeah, and fill that bathtub so you can flush the <laughs> toilet and just splash water on your face after the storm in case the, uh, the, the water supplies run out. Great. Well, thank you both very much for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was professional storm chaser James Reynolds and the Japan Times' Dan Trailer. You can find more from James on YouTube and Twitter by looking for his channel Earth Uncut TV. More from Dan can be found online at japantimes.co.jp. Next up, Andrew McCurdy tells us all about his night in an evacuation shelter. Andrew, thanks for joining us and you've had a pretty rough weekend. Could you tell us a little bit about your Saturday night and how Typhoon Hagibis affected you? Well, I live in Kitasenju in Adachi Ward. And if you look on a map, you can see that Kitasenju is it's almost like an island. Um, the Arakawa to the north and the Sumidagawa to the south, they, they basically run together at both ends and then diverge and then come back together again. And that area in the middle is Kitasenju. It is projected to be susceptible to flooding. Um, so for the typhoon on Saturday, we were in our house and then about half past three in the afternoon, we got a message 
telling us that the Arakawa was looking like it might burst its banks. And if that was to happen, then the whole of Kitasenju basically would just be completely flooded. So we decided to evacuate to the local primary school, which is higher than, than our house, so that we could spend the night there. We got there and we were told that it would take about an hour or two to get in because there was so many people doing the same thing, because everyone's in the same situation, unless you live in a high-rise building, which there's not really that many of in Kitasenju, then you would be flooded. To kind of get, get a better idea of your situation, how close is your house to the river? Mm, it's about a five-minute walk. but I mean, so the, the Anakawa near Kitasenju has this really, really big levee, which is far higher than the town itself. And if the water was to come over that, it would just flood everything. So you turn up at the evacuation centre, the primary school, and it's you and your family? Yeah. So I have two children aged seven and four. And because we came in a, as a family, they gave us like basically our own room, which was a real stroke of luck for us because, because it is obviously everyone is there in bad circumstances and mm. it's, it's a stressful time for everyone because everyone's worried that their property is going to be destroyed and that they're maybe going to have to stay at the evacuation centre for a long time. You get given just basically a sheet and a blanket um, and you just sleep where you can. I mean, there was people sleeping in the corridors. There was there was old people as well, like, who looked like it would be really uncomfortable for them to be sleeping on a floor. Mm. Um yeah, and it was just a real like tense atmosphere. What was going through your mind while you were um, in the evacuation shelter? Well, just wondering if the the river was going to break, and there's nothing you can do about it. I've just like so there was a website where you can um, they have like live camera um, footage of of the river at various points, and I was looking at that and just you know just <laughs> seeing it getting bigger and bigger and you just feel completely helpless mm -hmm. and just thinking I'm completely at the mercy of the elements um, and that is going to make the difference between do we either continue our life as normal or are we is or is everything that we own destroyed yeah it sounds <laughs> really tough what what did you um what did you bring with you um to the evacuation shelter not much because we didn't expect to evacuate so we just um put some clothes in a bag but not things like you know toothbrushes or anything like that um but i was really impressed by how well organized the evacuation center was i don't know if they were expecting that kind of situation but there were loads of volunteers who were already there and um you know they had everything ready and it was very orderly and everything we got they came around and handed out water and crackers and um, like hot rice um yeah, I mean it, it. It was really, it was really well run, and um, it, it helped to kind of calm you as 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 much as it, as you possibly can in that situation. Was there any kind of entertainment or anything to keep people's minds off the floods? Yeah, well, I mean, some people had brought books or games or something, you know, things like that. But, you know, like I say, I have two children and they're both, you know, you just, they've been, we've all been cooped up all day. And now we're just like cooped up in a room and, you know, 
it it's just really stressful for everyone and for children as well. You know, you try and tell them that be quiet because everyone's here. You know, because you know something bad might happen, but you know, kids don't really understand that, and it's just it's just stressful. It's just stressful for everyone. Unfortunately for you, though, the Arakawa didn't break its banks where you were, so you managed to return back to your house the next day. Yeah, so. Um, I fell asleep about 10 o'clock at night and woke up about an hour later and the rain had been falling all day and I looked out the window and saw that the rain had stopped and I thought, it was then that I thought we might be okay because um, you know I could see that it hadn't overflowed by then and it was the rain really rather than the wind that, that was going to cause a problem. So once I could see that the rain had stopped and it wasn't going to start again, I thought that, that we would be all right. Wonder how easy was it to make the decision to evacuate? Did you were you weighing that up? No, it, it's difficult because it made me realise how, you know, how reluctant you can be to sacrifice comfort for safety, mm. even when something's staring you in the face. You know, I mean, I was thinking, I'd planned what I was going to make for dinner, and I was thinking, <laughs> I don't want to leave that. But you know, then you just think, well, that's just don't be so stupid. I mean, you can't really take risks and. You know, just for one night of inconvenience and um, discomfort, you, you know, you have to take that decision. And given how many other people were there that night, it seems like for a lot of other people, it was an easy decision to make as well. Is this the first time you've ever evacuated from a natural disaster? Yeah, I mean, I had known that um, that I lived in a very vulnerable area um, and afterwards on one hand I was thinking well you know I live in a really dangerous area here maybe we should move but on the other hand I was thinking you know that was like basically the worst case scenario and it and nothing happened you know the, the levee to hold the river wasn't breached mm-hmm. um, and you know that when you think about it is something quite remarkable given how much of water there was you know I mean it could have been it could have been a complete disaster, but it wasn't. Um, and I, I think there's something to be said for that. Are you considering moving now or are you happy where you are? No, Kitasenja is a great place. And one of the best things about it is is the river because it, it's it's such a great, you know, it's like it's like a park landscaped all around the, um, the length of the river. And it's a great place. I woke up on Sunday morning and it was beautiful blue skies, no wind or anything. Um, and... I just had to go and see the river just to, you know, for my own peace of mind. So I went along and I had a look and there was loads of other people there as well. They were obviously doing the same thing and it was huge. It was it was not too far away from, from breaking over the top. And and I wondered if it, if it rained again, what would happen because there was rain forecast for Monday. Um, so on Monday when it started raining, again, I just, I just felt the need to go and have a look for myself. So... When it started raining on Monday night, I went along and had a look, and, and the, it had gone right down. It was amazing how quickly the water had gone down. Mm. Um, obviously, there's you know there's mud everywhere and there's like debris everywhere along the river, but it, it's strange just how how it went up so quickly and then it how it went down so quickly as well. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story, and I'm glad you're safe and your house is okay. Thank you. That was Andrew McCurdy, and he will also be writing about his experiences in a forthcoming article. 
Joining me now is Japan Times reporter Chisuro Tanaka, who is up in Nagano Prefecture and saw some of the worst of the flooding firsthand. Chisuro, welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining us today. Could you tell me a little bit about your Sase night and your experience of Typhoon Hagibis? Okay, so on Saturday, when Typhoon Hagibis made landfall, I was at my grandma's house in Nagano Prefecture, uh, which is like located around Chikuma River. And honestly, I thought like uh, staying in Nagano would be much safer than staying in Tokyo since the typhoon was expected to hit the Kanto area. Around 8 p.m., my phone received an emergency alert, like making crazy beeping sounds, like what you get when a big、uh, earthquake is about to hit. And saying that、uh, water level of Chikuma River near Ueda City, I guess, will like overrun the banks soon,、mm. and that I need. I needed to evacuate. So, how far is your grandma's house from、um, the river?、Uh, so, four to five miles away from、okay. the river. Yeah. Since there are seven of us in one room, and all the seven phones made the same crazy beeping sounds together, so it was like really chaotic. But、uh, since my grandma's house is on the mountainside and four to five miles away from river, so we still felt safe and、mm. continue playing cards. Okay. <laughs> and I received emergency alerts several times, even like after midnight. And then when I got the alert around, I guess like one a.m., I just turned off my phone and went to sleep. So you didn't. Think you needed to evacuate? You thought you were safe up there. Yeah. So my uncle lives around there, and he knows about like everything. So I pretty much counting. I was counting on him. Okay. So you went to bed, and the next morning you woke up, and what did you see? In the morning, when I turned the TV on, I saw towns near my grandma's house were completely flooded with water.、Mm. And I was like deeply shocked. So, as I'm a journalist, I asked my uncle to drive me to the town. But many streets along the Chikuma River were actually closed. So I walked to a bridge、uh, where、uh, many ambulances had pulled up. I could actually walk to the top of bridge, but、I、couldn't go any further, as it was flooded with water. And all the houses I see over were flooded to the top of their first floors. Okay, so this water is kind of two, three meters high at this point. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And did you see many people around? Were people being、um, evacuated from those places, or had everyone left before the river flooded? So、uh, I talked to a man with his two kids looking at the flood, and he said his grandpa was stranded on the second floor of his house without food. Like since six a.m., I think it was around twelve、uh, p.m. when I talked to him,、mm-hmm. and he said his grandpa was evacuated to a school near his house, but、uh, went back to see his house around six a.m. just to check the, on the damage. Back then,、uh, the town was not flooded at all. So while he was packing his stuff on the second floor, like I think just like ten minutes, the water rushed into the、uh, first floor. Okay, because that that was the thing with this typhoon, right? A lot of places. Actually, didn't flood immediately as the rain fell. It was kind of the next morning. Yeah, exactly. So nobody like really expected. So I actually talked to the,、um, another lady who was actually being rescued by boat.、Uh, so、um, I talked to her about what happened, and she said the same thing. Like she woke up at the, around six a.m. and was packing her stuff to evacuate. 
But then, like, the water rushed in, and then she couldn't really move. So how long were you up in Nagano Prefecture, and, and how did it change while you were there? I just came back to Tokyo today, which is uh, October uh, 16th. So I was there for three days since a typhoon. Mm-hmm. And second day since typhoon uh, swept Japan, I came back to the same place. And then flood water has uh, mostly like, receded. Mm-hmm. And like literally everything was covered with mud, cars, furniture, futons, uh, books, uh, everything. Yeah. And what were the people there doing? They were uh, cleaning up their houses and like I didn't really want to bother them. But some of them said they had never experienced like that crazy like level of typhoon before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you and your family all ended up safe afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was worried about like landslide because my grandma was my grandma's house was located on the mountainside, but it was okay. Yeah. And is that the first time you've ever seen flooding like that? Uh, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was your main takeaway from it? It looked surreal, and uh, I couldn't really process what was going on. But I was surprised that water has completely receded like just one day after. Mm-hmm. But I think my main takeaway is the extent of the devastation. Thank you, Shisato, for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. That was Chisato Tanaka, whose footage from Nagano Prefecture can be found on the Japan Times website. That's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you as always for listening. Our guests today were James Reynolds, Dan Trailer, Andrew McCurdy, and Chisato Tanaka. And you can find more from all of them online. If you like Deep Dive, do help make it better. Take our survey, it doesn't take long, and you can find it online at jtimes.jp dd. One more time, that is jtimes.jp dd, and the link can be found in the episode description. If you want to find more episodes just like this one, subscribe to us. You can find Deep Dive on all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and dry. Potskare sama.